prayer for God's blessing of one's daily work. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O Lord, my God, creator and ruler of the universe, it is your will that human beings accept the duty of work. May the work I do bring growth in this life to me and those I love and help to extend the kingdom of Christ. Give all persons work that draws them to you and to each other in cheerful service. I unite all my work with the sacrifice of Jesus in the mass, that it may be pleasing to you and give you glory. I beg your blessing upon all my efforts. With St. Joseph as my example and guide, help me to do the work you have asked and come to the reward you have repaired. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's a phrase Pope John Paul II frequently used when speaking to different groups. Become what you are. For example, at the World Youth Day in Toronto, he told the young people, if you are what you should be, that is, if you live Christianity without compromise, you will set the whole world ablaze. In Familiaris Consortio, his apostolic letter on the family, he says the family has the mission to become more and more what it is. We must therefore go deeper into the unique riches of the family's mission and probe its contents. His message is a simple reminder to each of us. If you're a Christian, be a true Christian, a great and holy one. If you're a priest, be a priest of zeal, prayer, and sanctity. If you're married, have a strong and holy marriage. Become what you are. If you haven't already grasped, our, our saint for this final talk is St. John Paul II. If you haven't read it, I can't recommend enough the book by Jason Everett, St. John Paul the Great, His Five Loves. Carol Joseph Wattia became the 263rd Bishop of Rome on October 22nd, 1978. and took the name John Paul and became the leader of the Catholic Church the next 27 years. Beatified by Pope Benedict six years after his death in 2011, canonized three years later by Pope Francis. Back when he was still alive, I was teaching high school religion. And whenever I asked my students to identify someone they considered to be holy, after Mother Teresa, they always answered Pope John Paul II. Even if we can't define holiness, we can easily recognize someone who has a profound relationship with God. Yet even for Pope John Paul II, this did not come about automatically or easily. Born in 1920, Carol was eight years old when his mother died. His elder sister, Olga, had died before he was born. And so he was left with one brother, Edmund, who was 13 years his senior. Edmund's work as a physician eventually led to his death from scarlet fever, a loss that affected Wojtyla deeply. Wojtyla and his father moved to Krakow in 1938 so that he could enroll in the university. So he was a student when the Nazis invaded the next year. 
and would occupy Poland for the duration of World War II. Carol Wojtyla had to work as a stonecutter in a limestone quarry and then for a chemical factory to avoid deportation and imprisonment. His father died in 1941, leaving Wojtyla as the only surviving member of his immediate family. And it was after his father's death, he started thinking seriously about the priesthood and began his studies in an underground seminary, knowing that if he was ever discovered to be studying for the priesthood, he would be arrested, imprisoned, and almost certainly die in a concentration camp. Later, as the Archbishop of Krakow, the church in Poland was again persecuted, this time under the Iron Curtain of Communism. We know how as Pope John Paul II was not afraid to speak out, not concerned with what people thought or whether he was popular, but only concerned with proclaiming the truth. He faced a world filled with war and violence, murder and abortion, a world of growing secularism and atheism. And yet it was a world he deeply cared about, one he prayed for daily, a world he desired to see transformed by Christ. Now that he has passed, will we continue this mission he started to transform the world by holiness? In this talk, not focusing quite so much on his life story, I would like to look a little bit more at his message to us. If you're a Catholic, St. John Paul would say, become what you are, be a true Catholic, a whole Catholic, one where your faith touches every aspect of your lives. Notice a small shift in emphasis. We're always speaking of growing in holiness, becoming holier, growing in our relationship with God, which is all true. But the late Pope turns this a little. He says, we're already in a relationship with Christ from baptism. We're just not always living this out. We are already children of God, heirs of heaven, called to a royal priesthood. This is what we are. And yet, unfortunately, we don't always cooperate with who we are and who we're meant to be with grace. And we block that grace. And so this is a holiness and innocence we were given as a gift from the moment of our baptism. Something we may have lost during our lives, but can be recovered and should be recovered. During his pontificate, Pope John Paul II canonized 483 saints, more than those canonized in the whole of the church's history. And he beatified 1,339 for living lives of heroic virtue or martyrdom. Now, part of this is due to the inspiring and tortuous fact that there were more Christian martyrs during the 20th century than in the prior 19 centuries. But it's also and perhaps primarily due to the Pope's insistence that the whole point of the Christian life is holiness. When the Pope canonized 
so many. He wanted to remind us that everyone has a vocation to become who we are in the mind of God when he first conceived of us, to be a saint. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We hear it again. Become what you are in God's plan. You're probably quite familiar with the phrase, the universal call to holiness, which of course was not just the teaching of John Paul II, it was the teaching of the Second Vatican Council. The universal call to holiness is a phrase that summarizes the fact that holiness is not limited to just priests and religious and popes, that every Christian is called to be holy. But we're not all called to be lookalikes to St. Francis of Assisi. That's why John Paul II canonized married couples and parents, single laity, common workers, laborers and doctors, mothers and fathers. As George Weigel says, the Pope wants to remind the people of the church that sanctity is in fact all around us. The more the people of the church believe that, the more the people of the church could see specific local example of lives lived in heroic virtue. The more likely we all were to live lives of sanctity to which we're, we were called in baptism. In the voluminous writings of the magisterium of Pope John Paul II, there are two references to the Second Vatican Council that he quotes more than he quotes any other document. It's in Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, numbers 22 and 24. Gaudium et Spes 22 teaches that Jesus reveals both the face of the merciful father and the true meaning of our humanity. Only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man become, take on light. Christ, the final Adam, by the revelation of the mystery of the father and his love, fully reveals man to man himself and makes his supreme calling clear. Jesus came not only to teach us about God, to teach us about the love of his father and to give us the Holy Spirit. He came to make clear what it is we are called to, the life we are to live, a life of holiness. This means that by his incarnation, the son of God has united himself in some way to every one of us. He worked with human hands. He thought with a human mind. He acted by human choice. He loved with a human heart. He was a truly integrated person. Born of the Virgin Mary is truly bent, made one of us, like us in all things except sin. By suffering for us, he not only provided us an example for our imitation, he blazed a trail. That if we follow him, life and death are made holy and take on a new meaning. And then he would quote from Gaudium et Spes 24, which teaches that the fulfillment of our lives is found in self-giving, not in self-assertion. 
unlike the selfishness and egoism of so much of modern culture, we are made not to live for ourselves, but for others. Since we're created in the image of God, there's a certain likeness between the union of the divine persons in the Trinity and the unity of God's children in truth and charity. This likeness reveals that man was the only creature on earth that God willed for itself, cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of himself. This even has its own little catchphrase. It's called the law of the gift. That our happiness, our meaning and purpose in life will not be found if we live through life, you know, what's in it for me? What do I get out of it? Our meaning, purpose, happiness, fulfillment in life will only be found if I live my life as a gift for others. And this new life of grace, the gift given us at baptism is to flow into every sphere of the human experience, the family, the school, the workplace, our everyday activities and leisure time. That's being an integrated Catholic, that our faith informs every aspect of our lives. And the new life we're called to is one that begins now. It's put into practice here. It's not like we're waiting till later. Our lives flourish in the gift of self to others. Our lives find meaning and purpose in living our vocations. And in every vocation, whether it's ministerial priesthood, consecrated virginity, marriage, we are all called to make our lives a gift, to take the gifts that we have been given and realize because they're gifts, they're not just for ourselves, but they're meant to be shared with others. All that we have is something we've received and they're to be used to build up the kingdom of God here on earth. We're all called to the same goal, namely God himself. Yet love of God cannot be separated from love of neighbor, the first and greatest commandment. St. John Paul II gave us what he called the key to interpreting his pontificate. And that key was the year 2000, the great Jubilee, the commemoration of the 2000th anniversary of the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming flesh, becoming man. Allow me to read from his first document of his pontificate, the very first paragraph of his first encyclical, Redemptoris Hominis, the Redeemer of Man. Back in 1979, he said, the Redeemer of Man, Jesus Christ, is the center of the universe and of history. To him go my thoughts and my heart in this solemn moment of the world that the church and the whole family of present-day humanity are now living. In fact, this time in which God in his hidden design has entrusted to me the universal service connected to the chair of St. Peter in Rome is already very close to the year 2000. For the church, the people of God spread, although unevenly, to the most distant limits of the earth, 
It will be the year of a great jubilee. We are already approaching that date, which will recall and reawaken in us in a special way our awareness of the key truth of faith, which St. John expressed at the beginning of his gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And elsewhere, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It just amazes me, his vision, that already when he was elected, he was looking forward to the year 2000, preparing for it. Why is this such an important date? Because it's the celebration of the incarnation. But it's also the summons for each of us to deepen our vocation and respond to who we are called to in Christ. It is to be a moment of decisive personal conversion and a stimulus to an even more generous fidelity to the gospel, a chance to truly encounter Jesus Christ as someone who's living and who calls us to conversion. The word used for conversion in the New Testament is metanoia, which means a radical change of mentality, a spiritual revolution of mind and heart, a complete turning away from sin and turning back to God. It's, just not, it's not just a matter of thinking differently in the intellectual sense. It's revising one's actions and the motives and reasons behind them in the light of the gospel. For St. John Paul, the point of the Jubilee was that we encounter Christ and that makes a difference in our lives. Conversion doesn't just remain internal only. This addresses what is believed to be one of the greatest problems of our time, that gap between faith and life, what some have called the greatest heresy of our day, the divorcing of belief from action. How many Christians, ourselves included sometimes, simply do not strive to live out and fulfill the demands of the universal call of holiness? Do our daily responses and actions correspond to the faith we profess? Hence our need to live an integrated faith, rooted in Christ, lived out in daily life. In his address to the young people at the World Youth Day in Rome during the Jubilee year, the saint said that among the many questions in life, decisions about the direction of your studies, about work, about your role in society and in the church, the most decisive choices are not about what. The basic question is who. Who am I to go to? Who am I to follow? To whom should I entrust my life? In the end, every one of us finds ourselves saying with St. Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. Only Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God and Mary, the eternal word of the Father, born 2,000 years ago at Bethlehem in Judea, 
is capable of satisfying the deepest aspirations of the human heart. The message of the late Holy Father, he wanted to preach to us in the Jubilee, is that quote, Christ loves each one of us in a unique and personal way in our practical daily lives. Christ loves each one of us in our families, among our friends, as study and work, in rest and relaxation. He loves us when he fills our days with freshness. And he also loves us when, in times of suffering, he allows trials to weigh upon us. Even in the most severe trials, he lets us hear his voice. He loves us even when we disappoint him, when we fail to meet his expectations for us. He never fails to embrace us in his mercy, end quote. I'm sure all of you know the first words to John Paul II when upon his election that he used so often throughout his pontificate. Be not afraid. Which are, of course, words that were frequently used by Christ himself. Do not be afraid. But yet that still, in a way, only tells us what we're not supposed to be. We're not supposed to live in fear. And so today, in reflecting on these different saints... Hopefully we've glimpsed a little bit more of what John Paul II said we are to become. Become what you are. That phrase the Pope again proclaimed to so many different groups, young people, to religious, to priests, are actually the words of St. Catherine of Siena, who said, if you are what you should be, you will set the whole world ablaze. These words were also used by St. Augustine in a famous Easter homily, only he used them in connection with the Eucharist. He says, Christian, after attending Mass, where Jesus shares the gift of himself with us, become what you have received. Become what you are. This is a step further than the saying of Socrates, know yourself. Because once man knows about the world and about himself, man can respond. Know who you are called to be so that you can become what you are. As I said, John Paul II gave us what he called the key to interpreting his pontificate. And so to reflect on that legacy given to us, I want to look at that apostolic letter he wrote to conclude the Jubilee year on the beginning of the new millennium, Novo Millennio Inuente. In it, the late Holy Father gives us an outline of what he calls his post-Jubilee pastoral plan. A plan we're called to implement in our lives as the, one who, the ones who live after the Jubilee. By the way, that Jubilee year seems like an eternity ago, doesn't it? <laughs> Have you all been putting this plan into action? 
I know I may have just kind of let it slip by a little bit. Now the Pope called us to say, we're entering a new era in Christianity. And by the way, this document, which he gave in January 2001, I, I recommend. And it's maybe a little easier to read than some of his other more theological encyclicals. Allow me to read the beginning of the letter, Novo Millennium Inuente. At the beginning of the new millennium and at the close of the great jubilee, during which we celebrated the 2000th anniversary of the birth of Jesus and a new stage of the church's journey begins, our hearts ring out with the words of Jesus when one day, after speaking to the crowds from Simon's boat, he invited the apostle, the apostle to put out into the deep for a catch. Duke in altum, put out into the deep. Peter and his companions trusted Christ's words and cast their nets. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish. Duke and Altum, put out into the deep. These words ring out for us today and invite us to remember the past with gratitude, to live the present with enthusiasm, and to look forward to the future with confidence. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Pope says. And so he begins by asking the question, what must we do? And the answer is that we don't need a new formula or program, but rather simply to carry out the plan of the gospel, a plan centered on the person of Christ himself, so that in him we may live the life of the Trinity. And he will transform our lives as he transforms history and brings all things to fulfillment. And so the challenge we face is precisely to go about our normal activity, but to do so in the light of the several pastoral priorities that are the fruit of the great Jubilee. And the first priority is holiness, which we've already emphasized today. The need to recognize the call to holiness in our lives and in our community. How Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council stressed this as an intrinsic and essential teaching of the church. Stressing holiness remains more than ever an urgent pastoral task, the Pope says. In his own words, the heading of holiness is a choice filled with consequences. It implies the conviction that since baptism is a true entry into the holiness of God through incorporation into Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit, it should be a contradiction to settle for a life of mediocrity marked by a minimalist ethic and a shallow religiosity. It would be a contradiction to settle for a life of mediocrity. He says, to ask catechumens, do you wish to receive baptism? Means the same as to ask them, do you wish to become holy? It means to set before them the radical nature of the Sermon of the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. To achieve this holiness, the Holy Father's next priority is prayer. Prayer is a continual process that cannot be taken for granted. We can never truly say, well, I'm done praying. I've done enough. I know how to do it now. 
No, he calls us to recognize that we cannot make any progress in the spiritual life or our apostolic work without a life dedicated to prayer. And the Holy Father also stresses the need to teach others to pray, especially at a time when so many are searching for God. He challenges us saying, our Christian communities must become genuine schools of prayer, where the meeting with Christ is expressed not just in imploring help, but also in thanksgiving, praise, adoration, contemplation, listening, and ardent devotion until the heart truly falls in love. Is your home and family a school of prayer? Do we try to foster a climate of prayer in our lives, in our families? Do we remember the necessity of some silence, finding that time and place to pray? After prayer, the sacramental life of the Eucharist and reconciliation must become the next two priorities. In his 1998 letter on the Lord's Day, the Holy Father describes the celebration of the Eucharist as the true fulcrum of history to which the mystery of the world's origin and its final destiny leads. I think that's a great image. The fulcrum is the support on which a lever moves. You take away the fulcrum, the lever doesn't work, it's useless. The Eucharist is the true fulcrum of history. Without the Eucharist as the fulcrum and center of our lives, we have no support, no leverage. Attendance at Sunday Mass is to be the defining mark of who we are as Catholics. And now we know more than ever, not just as a requirement because we have to. And we need to make that time for daily Mass and Eucharistic adoration. We need the Eucharist if we're going to be strong disciples and witnesses. And the Holy Father sees a renewal in this use of the sacrament of reconciliation brought about by the Jubilee year. He calls us to continue to have an appreciation for this great sacrament and the benefits we can receive from approaching this source of the Lord's mercy. Confession is the ordinary way of obtaining forgiveness and the remission of serious sins committed after baptism. It's an integral part of our continual call to conversion and repentance. Why does the Holy Father place prayer in the sacraments as his first priorities? It's not that the many other things aren't important, but that the many other things cannot be done, at least not effectively, without the primacy of grace. And all the things we set out to do, the Pope says we must observe this principle. There's a temptation which perennially besets every spiritual journey and pastoral work. The temptation of thinking that the results depend on our abilities and our action and our plan. And God, of course, asks us to cooperate with his grace and invites us to invest all our resources, intelligence, and energy, yes, in serving the cause of the kingdom. But it's fatal to forget that without Christ, we can do nothing. And it's prayer that roots us in this truth of the primacy of grace. It continually reminds us of the primacy of Christ. 
and in union with him, the primacy of the interior life and of holiness. If we don't respect this principle, don't be surprised that all those plans come to nothing and leave us frustrated. Then we share the experience of the disciples in that gospel story of the miraculous clutch of fish. We toiled all night and caught nothing. This is that moment of faith, of prayer, of conversation with God, in which they open their hearts to the tide of grace and allowed the words of Christ to pass with its, their great power through canals and pull it out into the deep. On that occasion, it was Peter who spoke the word of faith. At your word, I will let down the nets. I've really been reflecting on that the last few weeks. His You can just hear the frustration in his voice, right? We toiled all night. We caught nothing. And so that decision to follow Christ and to put the nets out into the deep took, in a way, a greater act of faith than the Lynn later on where they'll leave behind everything and follow Jesus because later on they'll have seen the miracle. And it's like, okay, I know you're the real deal. I'm going to follow you. But right now, all they see is a lot of empty nets and a lot of seemingly wasted effort. And they say, Lord, I'll trust you. I put this in your hands. I'll do what you ask. And so the Holy Father emphasizes listening to the word of God as the next pastoral priority. Devout reading and intensive study of sacred scripture should have a preeminent place in the church and our lives. How can we live the word of God if we don't know it? How can we bring Christ to others if we don't know him ourselves? And we have a responsibility as Christians to uh, be part of the church's mission to evangelize. Thus, the last priority is to proclaim the word of God as part of the new evangelization. I'm sure you've heard the term new evangelization, but do we know what it is? First, what is not new is the message. The truth remains the same, the truth of Jesus Christ and God's great love for us. The invitation he gives to either accept the offer of a loving relationship through repentance, conversion, and obedience, or to reject that love and remain eternally separated from God by one's own choice. The fact that the eternal destiny of everyone we love and encounter is hanging in the balance. That part is not new. What is new in the new evangelization is the urgency and zeal that is needed, but also new is the audience. For now we have to reach not to pagans who are ignorant of the gospel, but many who have heard the good news, but no longer follow Jesus Christ or no longer believe his word. The whole group Bishop Barron calls the nuns, right? The N-O-N-E-S. Those who have no religious affiliation. Finally, what is new is the fact that all people, not just priests and bishops, 
are to participate in this mission of the new evangelization. Because it's not one taking place in Africa or China. It's taking place in our neighborhoods and in our places of work and in our schools and parishes. Thus, St. John Paul II says in his document on the new third millennium, Jesus Christ is the good news of salvation made known to people yesterday, today, and forever. The crucified and risen Christ must be the center and starting point for all our pastoral planning, concern, and evangelizing activity. It is this proclamation of Jesus Christ that truly makes an impact on people, awakens and transforms hearts, in a word, converts. Christ must be proclaimed with joy and conviction, but above all, by the witness of each one's life. Remember when I said one of the greatest problems and heresies today is that division between faith and life? Well, the new evangelization is the exact opposite. It's the task of all the members of the church to make a commitment to Christ. And with that comes a commitment to evangelization, a natural desire to bring Christ to others, to share what we have received. And we do that first simply by who we are. The way we live should be a proclamation and a witness by our lives. Today, we're taking the chance to reflect upon how the Holy Spirit calls us to put out into those deeper waters, perhaps to deepen some area of your life of prayer, perhaps some part of your life where you need to move beyond the shallow and superficial to be immersed in God's love through conversation with him. Perhaps in another one of those areas that are part of the Holy Father's plan, in devotion to the Eucharist, the sacrament of reconciliation, listening to the word of God and proclaiming it, the need for charity, holiness, and grace. Do you remember learning how to swim? It's easy to sit on the side of the pool and dangle your feet into the water. Or how fun it was to swim in the shallow end where you could touch the bottom anytime you needed to. But that first time you're supposed to jump into the deep end, that first time you're supposed to jump off the diving board, and it's scary. Why? Because you can't jump in halfway. <laughs> it has to be a complete commitment. And the water is murky and dark. You can't see more than a foot or two down. When Jesus asks us to lower our nets for a catch, we don't know what's down there. We don't know how deep the water is. We don't always know where he's calling us. This is the challenge the Holy Father gives to all of us. Now we must look ahead. We must put out into the deep. Trusting in Christ's words, Duke and Altum. What we've done this year cannot justify a sense of complacency, and still less should it lead us to relax our commitment. On the contrary, the experiences we've had 
should inspire in us new energy and impel us to invest in concrete initiatives, the enthusiasm which we have felt. Jesus himself warns us, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In the cause of the kingdom, there is no time for looking back, even less for settling into laziness. Much awaits us. And for this reason, we must set about drying up an effective post-Jubilee pastoral plan. We're called to set out into deeper uncharted waters. There be dragons. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to set out into the unknown. For if we come to Christ through prayer, sacraments, and scripture, we know that he has overcome, and so can we. Recall the late Holy Father's motto, totus tuus. I am totally yours, O Mary. I am totally yours, and all that is mine is yours. And so we take Mary as our guide, so that we can be brought close to the heart of St. John Paul II, who realized that all we are belongs to God, belongs to Christ through Mary. Become what you are. Meditating upon the mystery of Christ, recall that he is the absolute foundation, not just of everything we do, but of everything we are. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.